morning. So the last song that we sang had this beautiful phrase in it. It said, lover of my soul, I want to live for you, right? It's a difficult thing to do, though, isn't it, to say, I want to live for you, and then actually day by day live uh, unto the glory of God. That's a, that's a difficult thing. And so uh, it's good because it's going to, I hope, dovetail into the sermon this morning. My name is Joey. Uh, I'm one of the elders here uh, that has the opportunity from time to time to be able to stand before you and bring the word uh, in preaching, which is a joy of mine. So I pray this morning that the word of God grips your heart. I pray that the word of God uh, changes your mind uh, and motivates your righteous deeds. And so uh, as we turn to Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, Jamie last week kind of gave us uh, the first chapter of Haggai, and he gave us some historical setting too, which is helpful uh, to let us know that the children of Israel, that is really the children of Judah, had been in um, exile in Babylon for roughly 70 years, and now they're returning into uh, the land, and when they arrive, of course, they've got their own homes they've got to take care of and build, and there's the wall around the city that they need to build, and the temple uh, foundation lies dormant, right? And the temple had been destroyed uh, in uh, 586 B.C. And they had come back, and now they're uh, building their homes. And Jamie talked about how they, they forgot and actually neglected the temple uh, and began um, gold plating is what I call it, gold plating their own homes, right, and doing all the comfort things before giving attention to the temple. And and God, through the prophet Haggai, called them to give attention to the building and construction of the temple. And so we pick it up in Haggai 2, um, where they're actually beginning this process. But I want to take a moment and go to Ezra chapter 3 to give you the historical uh, section of where we are in in the history of the Old Testament. So What's happened is they've returned, and Haggai's called them to action in building the temple, and they've uh, gathered some resources, and they've begun to be obedient to the word of the Lord through the prophet Haggai. They've started building. And in Ezra chapter 3, verse 10, we read this. It says, Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites, and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people, For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. I start there to give you the context of Haggai's second message to the people. In the moment of beginning to lay this foundation, the children of Israel were excited, right? And they were 
praising God as was fitting for the fact that his house was being reestablished. But there were some there, though it was 70 years later, there were some there who remembered the former temple. They remembered Solomon's temple. They remembered its majesty, its grandeur, its magnificence. And as they laid the foundation of what would become Zerubbabel's temple, they realized that this one would pale in comparison. And those who had seen the former glory of Solomon's temple wept at the foundation of this one. They were, you might say, depressed in this moment. And this happens in our spiritual walks, right? We cry out, Lord, lover of my soul, I want to live for you. But sometimes we have this habit of looking back on past glories and think, I'll never live up. Or why can't it be the way it used to be? We're in the midst of a suffering moment or we're in the midst of difficulty or we're just in a dry season and we look back on times when our spiritual lives may have been sweet. Or we look at other people and see their Facebook status and realize that their spiritual lives are just awesome and mine is so weak. And we get depressed. We hope for days gone by. We wish things had not turned out the way it is. Or maybe it's just the fact that the task before us of spiritual discipline or the task before us of being like Christ or even the task before us of, of loving our neighbor just seems overwhelmingly large and impossible. And those that day who had seen the former glory of Solomon's temple were looking at the materials which, with which they had to build and they realized that the materials that we have are nothing in comparison to the cedar that Solomon was provided. Because Solomon was able to get cedar from all over the land, the best of the best he used to build the temple. And they looked at the materials that they had and said, it's going to pale in comparison. And it may be that you look at the materials that you have to build with in life and think, I'll never measure up. Maybe, maybe even in personal conversion to Christ, you look at your sin and you say, I could never be a Christian. Or maybe you are a believer and you say, but I, I can never overcome this sin in my life. Or maybe you're a growing spiritual Christian and you desire for the nations to know of Christ, but you look at this monumental task of discipling all the nations and you say, we can never do it. It's impossibly large. It's exactly what was kind of happening in the hearts of those who had seen the former glory of the temple as the foundation was laid, and they began to be depressed about it. And so first, I want to call you uh, to understand that dwelling on past glory depresses present action. Dwelling on past glory depresses present action. You see, God calls us to the moment. God calls us to the now. God gives us his purpose for today, and if we spend time longing for yesterday, we will be so depressed we don't accomplish the very thing he's brought us to in the moment. We'll be afraid of what he's brought us to in the moment. And our present action 
would be depressed. As a matter of fact, Solomon himself warned against this very attitude in his glorious book in my mind, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10. He says, Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? Did you know the Bible said that? The Bible says, don't say those were the good old days. Don't look on the past and say, why was it so much better then? Because that attitude is not from wisdom, is what he says. For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Don't look back on the past and say, why can't it be like it used to be? There's several reasons why. One, you were a lot younger in the past, and you had this uh, childlike awe of these grandest, grandiose things, and our memories have this way of embellishing the glory of the past, right, and making it seem grander than it was. How many of you have ever gone back into your elementary school as an adult? Are those halls just really small or what? You know, when I was there, it was like this place was huge and I was lost because my parents weren't there. I couldn't hold a hand and find my way through. I had to do this myself. And it was just this huge place. And you go back there as an adult. And I don't know why, but the, the ceilings don't seem like they're eight feet. You know, the doors seem like they're maybe six feet. You know, I'm a short guy and I feel like I need to duck going through the doors, right? Because my, my childlike awe and the memory that I develop has this way of embellishing the past and making it seem greater than it was. And for some reason, though we remember suffering, the suffering doesn't hurt as much as we look back on it as it did when we lived it. We look at it from a place of healing and peace. And so dwelling on the past embellishes the glory, diminishes the suffering, and then you look at now, and we're in the middle of suffering, and it's painful, and we can't even find the glory that is for today. And so Solomon says, it's not wise to say those were the good old days. It's not wise to long for the past. Don't compare today to yesterday. Understand what God has called you to today. Stand up under it. And he says, work, right? It can be overwhelming and crippling to constantly try to reproduce the glories of a past embellished by your childlike memories. The task at hand begins to seem impossibly large. And so dwelling on past glory depresses present action. That's what was happening here. But let's continue to read what Haggai calls the people. This is what was happening in verse 3. He says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You see how they thought what they were doing now seemed like nothing compared to the past. But he says, yet now be strong, in verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. That's the political leadership, the governor, right? Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. That's the spiritual leadership, right? And then he says, O be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. 
And so I want to call you not only to, rem- to, to understand that dwelling on past glory depresses present action, I also want you to understand from this text that dwelling on past grace develops present action. This is what they're being called to do. They're being called to be strong, to work and act, and reminded that the Lord is with them. Now, why do I say that that's a dwelling on past grace? Well, if we look all the way back at 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 28, verse 20, when Solomon's temple was being built, you know, that magnificent one, the glorious one that they're comparing to in their minds, this is what David charges to Solomon. He says, Then David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. This was David's charge to Solomon as Solomon was preparing in his heart to build the temple. Okay? Be strong. Act. The Lord is with you. And now Haggai, at the foundation laying of the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, when they're depressed because they don't think the glory of this is going to match the glory of the former, Haggai says, be strong. Work. For the Lord is with you. He hearkens all the way back to the past and says, the same gracious God who was with Solomon, the same gracious God who called him to be strong and enabled his strength, the same gracious God who worked in him and provided all of those glorious materials to build this temple is the same God who is calling you to be strong, calling you to work, and who has promised to be with you. And so in life, look back on Past grace, not past perceived glory. Because as we look at past grace, we're reminded of the goodness and faithfulness of God, and we are encouraged to develop our present action because we rest on Him and His sufficiency rather than our own. And not only did he hearken back to the time when the first temple was being built and give them the same language, be strong, act, and I am with you, but the next verse in verse 5, he says, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. And so there's two things going on here, right? You've got a group of people who are coming out of exile from Babylon, and they're building a temple. And so God, in his gracious goodness, calls Haggai to speak to them, and he shares the very same words with them as he shared with the people who built the first temple and the very same covenant that he shared with the people who were first to come out of exile. He says, this is not new under the sun, right? You're not the first one to go through returning to this land from exile. You're not the first ones to go through the building of a temple. God has been with the people of Israel from the beginning in this. And he promised as they left Egypt that my spirit would be with you. And he has. And now that you're returning from Babylon, the same covenant God has covenanted with you. My spirit will be with you. And so you long not for the glory of the past, but you long for the grace of the past to be persistent in today. And we are given hope because we know that God is faithful and unchanging. And so that's the hopeful message that Haggai gives to the people as they begin to be a little bit depressed about this monumental task that's in front of them. Dwelling on past glory depresses present action. 
But dwelling on past grace develops present action. There's more to the story, though. This text gets good, right? We could talk about all the gold and silver and all that being brought. Now, that's, that's another sermon in and of itself, but I want to race to verse 9. In verse 9, Haggai says to them, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than than the former. And so from this, we can learn that not only dwelling on past glory depresses present action, but dwelling on past grace develops present action. Now we can see that the hope of future glory demands present action. The hope of future glory demands present action. And so he's reminding them, recalling them, and telling them that this place that you now lay this feeble foundation for that doesn't measure up in your mind, this place's glory will be greater even still than the glory you remember from Solomon's temple. Now, there are lots of ways that we could answer that question in history and determine if this prophecy played out or not. I'll say this, in the minds of those who did the construction, and by around 515 BC, their construction was complete of what is Zerubbabel's temple? They probably stood back and looked at it and said, what happened to the latter glory being greater than the former? Because this doesn't measure up to Solomon's temple. It just didn't. Physically, magnificence, grandeur, it didn't measure up to Solomon's temple. Now, we could look at history and we could follow out the rest of the days, and we would be reminded that if we studied on out in 19 B.C., so roughly 500 years later, in 19 B.C., Herod the Great comes on the scene, right? And he refurbishes Zerubbabel's temple. He doesn't really destroy or tear it down. He refurbishes and expands it. And Herod's temple then, what it becomes known as, is Herod's temple is magnificently grand and greater than Solomon's ever dreamed to be, right? In size and everything. So you could say, okay, the latter glory is greater than the former, even from appearances. Or we could look at this a different way. And we could understand that the presence of Christ brought glory to this temple. You see, the old temple was the place of sacrifice, the place of a longing for a Messiah, the place of re constant reminding that we do not live up to the requirements of the law, and so blood must be shed. It was that place where there was the veil that prevented us from having access to God and the Holy of Holies. It was that sort of place. But this temple, Zerubbabel's temple, refurbished later by Herod, is that place that we find in Luke chapter 2. It's the same place. Luke chapter 2. Listen. And when eight days were completed before, the circum before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. 
And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him that the Holy, by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought him brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. Then Simeon took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. The child Christ is ushered into this very temple for which these men had laid a foundation and were depressed over. They didn't understand at the time what God had called them to do in the moment. And so it was depressing because they were comparing it to former glory. But if they had just known, if they could just have gotten a glimpse of the fact of the future glory that would be ushered into this temple as a child and be brought before the Lord and sacrifices made for the Christ, how much joy they might have had in laying that foundation. And so focus on future glory demands Present action. Not only might they have been motivated if they understood that the child Christ would be brought there, but maybe it would have been more motivating if they had understood that this child would grow up to be a teenager who would be lost by his parents and, and they would go looking for him and only to find him later in this same temple, listening to the teachers and questioning them and others being amazed by his understanding. Maybe as they laid this foundation, if they could have envisioned the Son of God teaching and preaching the gospel in that place. That's what we're told, right, in Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, in verse 1, he says, And it came about on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. If they had only known that the Son of God in his glory would stand on that foundation and proclaim the gospel, maybe that would have demanded their joy in laying this feeble foundation. Maybe if they had understood that it would be in this temple that the Son of God would, out of a zealous righteousness for that place, would turn over tables and cast out the money changers because they had made this place a den of robbers rather than a house of prayer just days before his own arrest, just days after his triumphal entry. Maybe if they could have seen the zeal with which the Son of God would have had for this foundation, they would have been motivated more differently. The hope of future glory 
demands present action. The hope of future grace also defends our present action because even as we, as we look at future glory and we're, we're called to act and we begin to maybe understand what God is doing around us and we're able to work diligently because of that hope of that future glory, it sometimes gets hard, right? And we, we, we again slip into that depressed mode of thinking maybe this task is too big. But we learn here also that the hope of future grace, there's not only future glory, but there's future grace. And that future grace defends our present action and makes us persistent and enduring. Listen to the end of verse 9. He says, the latter glory of the house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. See, there's a hope for future grace in this as well. In this place, I will give peace. That old sacrificial system of temple worship was this constant reminder of the inapproachable nature of God because of our sin. And that, when you're struggling to do the right thing and, and you're, you're motivated by this uh, view of past grace and this view of future glory and, and you still find yourself falling in sin anyway, and you just get upset with yourself and want to give up, remember that, yes, that sacrificial system was this constant reminder of the unapproachable nature of God, and it was a constant reminder of our sin, but it was also a longing for future grace because we were told, they were told, that in this place, in this temple, he would bring peace. And so if you continue in all that God has called you to do, know that you are operating from a place of peace because it was the veil of that temple, wasn't it? It was the veil of that temple that at the death of Christ, when the earth shook, crazy that this text talks about the earth shaking too. Hebrews has some things to say about it, but we can't go there. But the earth shook and the veil of the temple was torn top to bottom, right? Thus granting access to the Holy of Holies through the death of Christ. Christ in his death established peace between us and God and therefore in our striving to be like him, the spirit is with us and he is causing us to grow in Christ's likeness and when we continue to fail, peace transcends because he's already accomplished that peace in his death and he's promised peace eternal. And so as you struggle maybe with difficulties from time to time and personal failures, don't allow that to depress you. Rather, allow it to cause you to focus on the future grace which will defend your present action. And so, dwelling on past glory depresses present action. Dwelling on past grace develops present action. Dwelling on future glory demands present action. And dwelling on future grace defends present action. So, as we look back at our own lives and we struggle maybe with the fact that we ourselves 
have wrestled with sin, or maybe we embellish the, quote, glory days of sin. Oh, yeah, we do that in our culture, don't we? And we kind of glorify sin. And even sometimes we look back on our past, and certainly unbelievers continue to look back on their past. Maybe you're struggling with, should I follow Christ or not? And you look back on your past and you say, but it's so much fun. Look at all the pleasure I would have to give up. And you dwell on the glory days, right, of sin. Maybe as a, as a believer, sometimes you just get fed up with the, the struggle of Christian discipline and the, and the flesh in you struggling against your spirit, and, and you just feel like maybe I should just give up. I'll never be good enough. And you look back at how easy it was when you didn't care. Can we be honest? Do we ever do that? Maybe you think you're too far gone to love, to be loved by Christ or to serve him. Maybe you just long for those fleshly pleasures. Dwelling on past glory will depress your present action. So I call on you first to stop embellishing sin, making it seem grander than it really is, and dwelling on the past. And don't set that high standard of comparison for yourself that you feel like you can't attain. Don't look at the past or look at other people and say, well, I can never be that good or I can never be that way and think that Christian discipline is just unattainable. Don't look at the world and the nations and think it's just too big of a task for us to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth and, and just give up because it's unattainable. Rather than dwelling on past glory, rather than dwelling on the glories of others or the size of the task in comparison with the resources that you feel like you have, Rather than that, dwell on past grace. Let it develop your present action. Because the same God that strengthened the men of God in Haggai's day is the same God that strengthened the men of God in Solomon's day. The same God that strengthened the exiles as they returned from Babylon is the same God that strengthened the exiles as they returned from Egypt. And it is the same God that strengthens you today to carry out the calling of God in your day-to-day -day life as you have been led from exile in sin into righteousness in Christ. It is the same God, and he's promised to make us strong. He has promised to do the work in us. And as a matter of fact, he says later that he who is faithful to he is faithful to complete that which he has begun in you. And so if God has begun this work of sanctification in you, if God has begun this work of calling you to the nations, if God has begun the work of just making you love your neighbor, know that God is faithful to complete that work which he has begun in you. And so be strong. Focus on the grace of your own past. Look at your own life and say, wow, I remember when God brought me through X, Y, or Z. Oh, I'm sorry, X, Y, N, Z, right? Not an OR gate, an AND gate, right? And let that 
reminds you of the goodness of God in the here and now, and it motivates your actions. As you look at the nations and you think about the fact that this is a grand and overwhelming task to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, remember Haggai said to them, according in verse 5, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Do you know we have a covenant as well? In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he said, go, therefore. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you to the end of the age. This is that great commission where Christ himself, having given all authority from heaven and on earth, now calls us to go and says the same thing he said to those in Egypt, the same thing he said to those coming from Babylon. He says to us, I am with you. Let past grace develop your present action. And so I call you to be strong, O followers of Christ. Work, for he is with us. And then dwelling on our future glory, again, will demand our present action, just as it would have demanded it for those building Zerubbabel's temple. Current suffering is, is difficult and and. And we, we sometimes want to just fall under it and not press on. It's just too hard. But Paul said that the current suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory which will be revealed in us. Right? And so if we will focus our hearts and our minds on that glory which we have in Christ and that glory which will be revealed to us, then whatever suffering this world has or whatever difficulty this world has or whatever depression this world brings can be overcome by the hope of that future glory. That's what Paul was saying. What we're dealing with now is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. Not only that, but in 1 Corinthians Five, I mean, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, verse uh, 47. He says this. He says, this first man, he's talking about Adam, is from the earth and earthy. This second man is from heaven. That's Christ. And then he calls, he says, as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Verse 49. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Did you hear that? The sufferings of this current world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. And just like we bear the image of Adam, the earthy, Guess what? If we are in Christ, saved by his goodness and grace, death, burial, and resurrection, if we're saved by him, then just as we have borne the image of this earthy Adam, we shall bear the glory of Christ. That future glory ought to demand our present obedience in action. Just as much as the thought of the baby Jesus being brought to this foundation or the young boy Jesus learning and questioning in the temple or 
the man Jesus flipping over tables here or the man Jesus preaching the gospel from that location, if they had but known that, they would have been filled with joy. And if you but could see the glory which we will share with Christ, you too would be filled with joy no matter what depression or suffering may come in your day-to-day life. And so I challenge you, don't dwell on past glories, depressing present action, and don't, but yet dwell on past grace, which will develop your present action, and dwell on future glory, which will demand it. And so be strong, O followers of Christ. Work for his glory he will share with us. Finally, dwelling on future grace will defend your present action, just as it did for those building the temple. Do you ever let that depression completely overwhelm you? Do you ever let it prevent you from fighting the fight against sin? Do you ever just give in? Or maybe maybe you're in that place where the depression over your past sin or depression over your own image of yourself prevents you from coming to Christ. Maybe you think, I'm too far gone. Dwelling on future grace will defend your heart and mind against those thoughts so that you can persist in present action. You see, if you will put aside for a moment the thought that I can never be or I never will or it's too hard or it's too big, and you will recall that in the death of Christ, the veil really was split. And in the death of Christ, he said, it is finished. And what he meant was the work of salvation is complete. That is, you don't have to do the work to save yourself. But Christ has completed it and fully established peace with God through his death and resurrection. If you will just remember that. And know that that peace is guaranteed for eternity for all those who will just trust in Christ, then all of the depression or the inability that you may think you have or the overwhelming nature of this task will fade away in the joy of the peace that, accomplished, that is accomplished in Christ. For he truly has made Peace, And you need to know that. It's not up to you to establish peace. Christ has made it. And Paul reminds us of that in Colossians 1, 19. He says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of the glory of God to dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of God of his cross. You see, Christ has established peace. If you will just enter into that rest and put aside the things that are preventing you from obeying and following him, 
But not only has he established that peace for the here and now, that peace has been so well established that we're told that there will be no need for a temple in eternity. Because remember, that temple was that thing designed to remind us of our distance from God. But in Revelation 21, we read this. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper, It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which were those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so we have this beautiful, glorious image of the kingdom of God, right, that's made up of all of Israel, the 12 tribes, and all of the Gentiles who believe on the word of the apostles. And this is what's said in verse 22 there. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And so I long for you as the people of God to stop dwelling on the past and your sin or some glorious embellished image that you have that you think you'll never measure up to that depresses you from doing anything. And instead, focus on the grace of the past. Focus on the future grace that God has established peace such that we will no longer need a mediator, but we will see him face to face, and he himself will be our temple where we can enter into the Holy of Holies for all eternity, resting in the finished work of Christ. Don't let this depression do you in. Simply focus on past grace future glory, and future grace as well. And so I call you. Be strong, O followers of Christ. Work, for his grace is sufficient and unfailing. Father, we thank you again for your word. What a beautiful display of your wisdom and your majesty and your goodness and your sovereignty and how that people from coming out of Egypt could be told the same thing, that people coming out of Babylon and people in the room today could need to hear those same words and they could be just as powerful for us as they were for them and for them. So God, I ask that you would make us strong, that you would allow us to understand that we are the people of God, that you would motivate our work, that you would allow us to rest in the peace accomplished in Christ by focusing on future glory, focusing on past grace, focusing on future grace as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen.